Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, we have been reading Mark together, and this morning uh, we come to the end of Mark's story. So we're going to pick up where we left off last week, which is in the late afternoon on the day that Jesus was crucified. I'll read from Mark 15 and 16 for us, and you can follow along in the order of worship where it's printed or in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read. And uh, we don't have verses 40 and 41 printed there, but I'm going to actually start there because we'll talk about those this morning. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate, and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we just sang together that we are turning uh, unfilled to you again, and These words are definitely true, and some of us feel that, some of us know that. We are hungry, we are thirsty, we are ready to be filled. We are longing to hear some word from you. There are others of us here this morning who, even though though we sung those words, we're not even sure what they would mean. What, What does it mean to be hungry and thirsty for God? Or maybe we feel that we have walked too far away from you or that you are distant from us. Father, whoever we are and wherever we have come from in faith and outside of faith, we ask that you would meet us now through this word, 
that you would meet us through the word that became incarnate, who bears our flesh, who is seated with you, praying for us right now. Show us Jesus' grace and change us by it. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, since we were uh, coming to the end of Mark this week, I was thinking uh, a little bit about endings. Um, Endings uh, are as hard to pull off as they are important, I think, especially in writing, especially uh, in storytelling. I mean, everyone knows you can have a pretty great story and then really mess it up at the end. Uh, The TV show Lost comes to mind when I think about that. In any, in any crowd of a hundred people who watch that show from beginning to end, there are always 99 who abhorred how it ended and who will be happy to tell you exactly why they hated it. Endings, endings are hard, but they are also really important. You can, you can have a classically sad ending to a story. The ending to Walt Wangren's novel, The Book of the Dun Cow, is so impeccably, painfully, perfectly sad that I can hardly stand to think about it, but I do anyway all the time. It is a terrible, terrible beauty, a very sad ending. Or you can have a classically happy ending, you know, one where all the loose ends are tied up, all of the enemies have been roundly defeated, where the relatable, flawed hero has been redeemed. I think of the end of Capra's It's a Wonderful Life, with Jimmy Stewart winking skyward, saying, attaboy, Clarence, while everyone belts out Auld Lang Syne. Or you can have an ending that just trails off, or an ending that confuses, or an ending that undercuts everything that you've heard to that point in the story, or an ending that shocks, or an ending that makes you laugh, or any one of dozens of other variation. Endings are really important, and I bring this up because... Mark's ending is a whopper. I don't know if it stuck out to you when I read it, so let me remind you, let me read it for you again. This is how Mark ends his story of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is the last line in Mark's story. They went out and fled from the tomb, for fear and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. (laughs) That's how Mark ends his story. This is the snapshot, frozen in time. This group of beautiful, terrified women hightailing it as fast as they can from the empty tomb, struck dumb with fear. So here's what I want to suggest. Mark's ending is an invitation. Mark's ending is an invitation for people like us to enter into that snapshot, to enter into that picture and for a moment into the startling, unsettling, frightening and beautiful truth that these women were experiencing. And to think about what's next. What are we going to do now? So let's begin with the women. After the story of Jesus' crucifixion, Mark subtly shifts the scene. It's pretty amazing. After Jesus has breathed his last, after the centurion has made that startling confession, 
Uh, it's like the camera pulls back for this wide shot and we see over in the corner this new set of characters. They've been there all along, but we haven't known that they've been there. Mark tells us there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were the two Marys and Salome. He says, actually, there were many other women who had come to Jerusalem that week with Jesus. And he goes to describe this group of women with very, very important words. When he was in Galilee, Mark says, meaning Jesus, when Jesus was in Galilee, they followed him and they served him. I don't think Mark has used those words casually. I don't think that description of those women is something that he just threw out there. He wants us to know those women served. And that's a description that matters, and it matters because this is the very word. It is precisely the same word that Jesus used to describe his entire life. It was back in uh, chapter 10 of Mark's Gospel, which you should definitely read again this afternoon. At the end of Mark 10, Jesus was teaching his friends what it meant for them to be really great. What does real greatness look like? And he said that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus sums up the entirety of his life by saying, I have come to serve, to give of my life for the good of others. And now Mark tells us that's what these women did. They had enacted the life of the Son of God. They had shared in his life, and now they had lived out his life in the world. And by Jesus' own definition of greatness, They are great. And in case we needed any evidence of that, here's the evidence. They have served to the bitter, horrific end. They have watched him die. And so there's this remarkable contrast that's being set up for us, and it's worth taking note of. Of course, there's this other group of Jesus followers that are in Jerusalem that week. We haven't, of course, forgotten about the other group of Jesus followers that are there that week, but they happen to all be cowering in fear somewhere, absent, absent at the end of Jesus' life, having fled when things got hot. These men are nowhere to be seen. And so it's a contrast that's worth thinking about. I think Mark wants us to think about it. Peter, James, John, all of the rest of them, they had affection for Jesus. And no one, no one will ever question whether they had affection for Jesus. It's clear that they did. But their affection for Jesus was tainted by their ambition. And it was tainted by their self-serving. And when their ambition and when their service of self was no longer being fed... They cut and run. And if you think I'm being too hard on them, just read Mark 10 again, just like I said. 
Just read Mark 10 because you know the thing that made Jesus teach about what it is to be really great. Do you know what it was that triggered Jesus saying, this is what true greatness is and this is what the Son of Man came to do. He came to serve. Do you remember what made him do that? It was the request of two of them, James and John. Jesus, hey, when we get to Jerusalem, do this for us. Let us sit at your right hand and your left hand in glory. When you come into power, make us number one and number two. You won't be disappointed. And you know, the rest of the ten, they hear about that. They get upset that they didn't get their request in ahead of time and they blow their tops. It is naked ambition all around. Service of self on their minds, even if it was mixed with affection for Jesus. But these women? (laughs) Their affection for Jesus was unalloyed, unspotted, untainted. It was expressed in serving. It was expressed in them remaining to the end, playing out the long game that true love always sees to the end. And I think about this, I look at this, and I ask myself, how pure is my love? Is it clouded with some self-ambition? Is my love weakened by self-protection? Self-preservation? I ask those questions. I don't like the answers, honestly, that I come up with. And maybe you can relate. So the easy thing for me here would be to say, well, our our love should be like the women's love, right? It it should be like their love. It shouldn't be tainted by ambition. It shouldn't be tainted by self-serving. Our love should be self-giving. Our love should not seek our own way. Our love should be willing to remain, to play out the long game until the bitter end. And yeah, all of that is absolutely true, church, and we have been called to love that way, and we have actually been created to love that way. And more than that, when we love that, that way, things change. Healing springs up. Mercy springs up. Peace springs up when we love like that. When we love like that, justice springs up in the wake of that love. But it isn't as simple, is it, as waking up tomorrow morning and just going, okay, today I do it. <laughs> I'm going to love like they did. Because you and I know that loving like that is not our first impulse as fallen people, even if we know that it is the impulse that is true. Even if we know that it's the impulse we have been made for. We need grace to love like that. Ronald Kernigan, who teaches at Fuller Seminary, says this. He says, if we say that Jesus died for our sins, then we must also say that his death exposes the convoluted nexus of human motivations and sweeps them all away but one. Love. If we say Jesus died for our sins, then we have to be ready to say this is one thing it does, it exposes all of our weird motivations, all of our wrong motivations, and then it washes them away with his blood, leaving only love. We need the forgiveness. We need the grace. We need the power that Jesus won for us in his death in order to love as we have been called to love. 
So how do we get that grace? Well, the beginning of it is, is admitting in our repentance that our love is broken and tainted. We get that grace by asking to be forgiven and asking to be changed. And then we live in that humble rhythm of repentance for the rest of our Christian lives. And when we do that, church, we change. That is how we change. And Jesus' way of loving slowly becomes our way of loving. And these women are a beautiful picture of that. We will come back to them, of course. So Mark shifts again, and he reminds us that it's just a few hours before sundown, just a few hours before the Sabbath. And that means that if Jesus' body is going to be cared for, it's going to have to be cared for quickly, before the sun goes down. These women who are there watching, they don't have the power, they don't have the resources, they don't have the authority to pull that off. But Mark tells us that there is someone there, Joseph from Arimathea, who does. Where did this guy come from? Well, Mark describes him as a respected member of the council, which is something of a shock to us because that means that he is a member of this group called the Sanhedrin, which in turn means that he was there in the middle of the night at Jesus' trial when Jesus was condemned to death as a blasphemer. Now, Mark is characteristically understated. He does like he always does when he describes Joseph as someone who was looking for the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Well, John, in his gospel, fills the picture out. Joseph was really a secret follower of Jesus. But he had kept it on the down low for reasons that may make sense to us. John says that Joseph was afraid. So now it's, it's a compelling portrait. Now it's a complex portrait of this guy named Joseph. He is respected. He is wealthy. He is powerful. By first century standards, he has it all. I mean, not, forget first century standards. By any century standards, he has it all. But he also has this other thing, which is a conflict deep inside of who he is because of what he believes and hopes about Jesus. And so that means for who knows how long, for months, maybe for years, he has been keeping a secret. He's been keeping what he really believes, what he really lives, what what he really hopes for, a secret, and giving off a veneer of believing and hoping and living something entirely different. So this guy who has it all is actually messed up and conflicted and afraid. But now look. He took courage, Mark says. He took courage. He somehow amped himself up and he goes and asks Pilate for the body of Jesus. He, he goes to the Roman governor of Judea and he outs himself as a friend, as a, a, a loyalist, as a, at least a sympathizer of the man that Pilate has just executed for treason and sedition. It is a huge risk. It's a huge risk. 
It compromises Joseph's standing in the world, and for all he knows, it may compromise his life. And remember, church, remember, this risk that he is taking now is a risk that those who had been close to Jesus, the closest ones to Jesus, that was a risk they were unwilling to take. And Joseph is all in. And then he does that difficult and unfamiliar and hard work of preparing a beaten, battered, bloody corpse for burial. Listen, let's not misunderstand this. Rich, powerful, wealthy guys did not prepare corpses for burial in the first century, especially not corpses of enemies of the state. And yet here he is, doing this hard, sad work that will make him unclean, ritually unable to participate in the Sabbath when the sun goes down. No, you guys go on. I have to stay back. Why, Joseph? Uh, he's probably never been in that spot before in his life, and now he has catapulted himself headlong into that place. Joseph has loosened his grip on all of the things that he had in the world. He's willing to risk it all. If they slip away from him, so be it. Because he is not afraid anymore. He is not afraid. Something happened to Joseph. Something has made him move to resolve that conflict he had been living with for so long. That conflict between fearfully protecting what he had and actually following Jesus fully. Something had happened to Joseph to make him move from protecting his status and his power to using his status and power for the good of others, even if it meant he would lose everything. Something has weakened his fear. And I want to suggest that that something is actually a someone You know, last week we we talked about the centurion who was at the foot of Jesus' cross. We talked about how that centurion had gone from, from beating Jesus and crucifying Jesus, literally being Jesus' executioner, to confessing that he was truly the Son of God. I mean, that centurion changed. Something happened to him. And Mark is really specific and really clear about what caused that change. He saw how Jesus died. Mark says when he saw that in that way Jesus breathed his last and died, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. It wasn't the fact that Jesus died that changed this guy. He'd seen dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of people die. Probably killed dozens and dozens and dozens of people. No, he had somehow perceived the meaning of Jesus' death. Love doing for him what he cannot do for himself. He remembers the prayer, Father, forgive them. This is what that guy prayed while I was nailing him into the cross. And he realized now, when he sees Jesus die, what that prayer meant. And that it was, that Jesus was the only person who could ever rightfully pray it for him. And he's changed. And that's what changes Joseph too. And church, 
This is the one thing that can weaken our fear, too. It is the only thing that will weaken our fear and move us from frantically protecting what we have towards using what we have for the good of others when we perceive the meaning of Jesus' death that he has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. Because in Jesus' death, we don't just have the perfect example of what it looks like for someone to give of themselves for others. In Jesus' death, we have him actually doing it for us. He's not only our example, he is the power at work in us to live as we have been made to live. So I don't know what it is that you are protecting. I don't know what it is that you have fearfully drawn a circle around in your life. I don't know what makes you afraid to loosen your grip on what you have and risk it in the service of others. I don't know. You're going to have to think on that one yourself, and I hope you will. My own list of those things is long and varied and ugly. I don't know. But I do know what heals people like you and me. I do know what weakens our fear. I do know what makes our hands open up. It is love doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. It is the grace, it is the power that is secured for us in the death of Jesus. It is having that poured out on us again when we repent again and believe again. Church, that's what changes us. So Joseph, he's done what he could. He's laid Jesus' body in a tomb. And Mark tells us that the women who had been watching at a distance, they've obviously followed him around all over the city, seeing what he's been doing, and they note it. They note the place where he laid him. But it's almost the Sabbath, and so they've got to get ready to go home. So I have to tell you, I'm glad to be speaking and talking about an account of the resurrection on a Sunday that isn't an Easter Sunday, because that allows me to pass over some of the things that I might usually say about the resurrection on an Easter Sunday, because I know that in nine weeks, I will get to say those things. So come back in nine weeks, swing by, and you'll hear them. This morning, I just want us to think about the shock of it. The woman head there that morning with spices to care for Jesus' body. They know because they were watching him that Joseph didn't do it right. But that's okay because he's done a good thing and he was in a hurry. This is one last act of service that they can perform for Jesus. One last way they can serve him. And we shouldn't kid ourselves. They know this is the last act. They didn't for a moment think that something amazing was about to happen. So we know the story. They arrive at the tomb and the stone, which they had been worried about moving themselves, has been moved. And they walk into a tomb and there's a young man there dressed in a white robe, obviously an angel. And this angel has a word for them. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. You can look and see where he used to be. And that's it. It's just a fact. 
We, we don't get a description of how it happened or what it looked like. None of the Gospels, oh, this is what it looked like. when it, No, none of that. Mark doesn't do any backflips to convince us that it's true. It's just a fact. The sun rises in the east and two plus two is four. And it's usually cold in Chicago in the winter. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has destroyed our final enemy and risen from the dead. The shock of it. Like all of the miracles in in Mark's gospel, of which this is clearly the most profound and unsettling, it comes as a bit of a smack on the mouth. (laughs) That's what it is. It's a challenge. It's a challenge because it, it doesn't follow the normal rules of nature. It's a challenge. It's a smack on the mouth because it doesn't fit into our squared away view of how the world works. And that's exactly the point. (laughs) The resurrection of Jesus is a firm smack intended to unsettle our view of the world, not support our view of the world. It needs changed. It is intended to unsettle absolutely everything. Whatever the women thought they were going to go see that morning, that definitely wasn't it. It is a visceral upheaval of everything they thought they knew. And of course they lose it. Of course, they lose it. And that upheaval is an incredible gift for them and for us because it cracks open a space for us to believe. To dare to believe that it's true. To believe it is to believe that new creation has happened. To believe it is to believe in, to believe that people like you and I can be forgiven. That people like you and I can be healed. To believe that this happened is to believe that justice and peace are not just things that will happen every once in a while if we work really hard, but to believe that justice and peace are the certain, settled telos of the created order. They will happen, and we will live forever in it. To believe that Jesus really is the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. So we're right there with those women. We are shoulder to shoulder with them. Mark's ending is an invitation to think about what's next. Where are we going to (laughs) go? What are we going to do? Will we just hang out in the snapshot? Staggering around in unbelief and fear? Or will we follow him in faith? Will we believe and find our fears weakened and our loves changed? Let me pray for us. Father, do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Help us to to enter into that moment as best we possibly can. Use whatever means you you have at your disposal, other people, the circumstances of our life, whatever it is, to help us to enter again into that moment of that unsettled fear that nothing is like I think it is. (laughs) That I am not living in the world I thought I was living in. I am living in a new creation. Help us to live in that moment and then to walk forward in faith and believe. Father, do this for our good. Do this so that 
the, the strong grip of fear in our life will be weakened. Do this so that our loves will be changed to look like your loves. Do this for the good of the broken world around us. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.